I'm Pastor JP. Welcome. We are so glad you are checking us out online. We hope the word you're about to hear is an encouraging point in your life today. So we're praying for you. We love you. Stay tuned. And if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel. But I won't say where, because some of you like to cheat. Some of you are sneaky. But I'll give it to you in just a moment. Mom guilt. Absentee dad. Body shaming. Social media shaming. Imposter syndrome. I mean, the list goes on and on. It seems like every day the world just keeps inventing new phrases, new terms, new vocabulary. When we have, we're starting to have to make up words to define and help illustrate the ways we want to shame and counsel, uh, cancel people. Block people out. X people out. It just seems like our world suffers from not knowing how to deal with and heal from shame. From their own shame. They don't know how to deal and help others heal from shame. Today, I want, I want to talk about how to, how to heal from guilt and shame and rejection. You ever done something that you were ashamed of? Whether you ever felt a deep sense of shame? Whether you were guilty of something or someone else was guilty of something, but you carried the shame. Maybe it was private, maybe it was public, maybe it was something you did, something done to you. Maybe it's something that's deeply buried and it comes up every now and then. Maybe it's crushing and heart-wrenching or some form of rejection that keeps playing itself out in some way, in some nature, in some form or another. And then we find ourselves as adults sometimes, especially, but all ages, living in a, a dark place. Just, it's just, just a dark place, but we don't really know it. Because it's not like pitch black, it's just a gray space. And you live in life, but you just, everything looks gray. It's a, a valley of shadows. It, it's just, you're going through the motions, but you're filtering everything. You're just moving through a val one valley of shadows after, after the, the next. And you just see everything through the gray. You see, every circumstance, every person, every relationship, everything around you, it's just through the gray. It's just because someone carrying the shame that you carry deserves to stay in that low place. You've convinced yourself. You deserve it. Or you're supposed to be in that gray place. You, you're, suppo you're supposed to be in that space of no value. Just no value. And interesting enough, the Bible ha actually has a place, a place, a geographical place, 
that its literal translation, its name means no value. No value. No, it, there were no pasture lands. It could not bear fruit. It couldn't be farmed. It, 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 was, just, uh, it, it was just dysfunctional. It couldn't give any healthy wells or any healthy water or anything like that. It was just a, it was just a, a odd place. And so they named it No Value. They named it Lodabar. And so it was a forgotten place where they tend to kind of put people that want it to be forgotten. In 2 Samuel chapter 4, we read about a situation that's pretty heart-wrenching. Verse 4, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son. Had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul, Saul was king, and Jonathan was his son and heir. The news came from Jezreel that and so his nurse picked him up and fled. But she hurried to leave and he fell and became disabled. The news that they had received was that his dad and his grandfather had been killed. So as they fled, she hurried to leave, and he fell and became disabled. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now, a new king is in place, and it's David. Some time has passed, decades even. We flip over to chapter 9. David was actually very close and remained in a relationship of integrity with both King Saul and his son Jonathan. But he was best friends with Jonathan and made a promise with Jonathan that he would do his best to be good to his family. And so, in chapter 9, David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba, and they summoned him to appear before David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And at your service, he replied. And the king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? And Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king said. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Maker, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Now let's just pause and pray for a moment. Lord, we just ask now. That as we begin to look at this story, that it, you would help us see past just the, the surface renderings of a few actions of a few individuals and look within to see your hand at work and how it might be at work in us. So come Holy Spirit. Let your word come alive. Let it come alive in me. The meditation of my heart and the ministry of my lips. Be pleasing to you, O Lord. We ask in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The whole country was up in arms. 
Everywhere alarms sounded. Militias suited up, headed out, bloodthirsty, and powered hungry. These bands, raiders, hit the trails, murdering throughout the countryside. Their cries brought news of King Saul's death. And like any political situation like this, there's, there's always going to be collateral damage. The house of Saul was crumbling. And there are always people going to take advantage of that. National confusion and panic has set in. And in the midst of all of that, word has finally reached that not only is Saul dead, but Jonathan is dead. And there stands, confused and dazed, Watching the front door of his father's house, a confused five-year-old boy. Five. Probably shocked and, and, and frozen, hoping that at any moment his dad is going to come barreling through that door and, and scoop him up and whisk him away and protect him and... And that all of this is just a nightmare and that he's going to wake up at any moment. And that his daddy is going to appear and come to the rescue. And in the commotion of distant relatives and servants and stewards rushing about and grabbing all the supplies and grabbing what what they could off of the off of the shelves and they raided and flee and one of the nurses go to grab him and I can imagine he probably stiffened himself stiffened himself and, and, and fell in all that commotion and trampled and became lame in both feet and now Pain accompanies his, his fear. As he's dragged out the door and taken to God knows where. Some guy named Maker takes him in, some distant relative probably. He can't be free. He's carried off. He's five years old. And now he's lame. And not much else is said of this Mephibosheth. Not much else. He's lame. He's unable to walk without assistance of a human hand. And now, all really much he can do is sit around the, the house of a salesman. And he's probably surrounded by a bunch of disgruntled, embittered, leftover survivors of the house of Saul who they too now have found refuge about in the only space that they could down in Lodabar no longer in the bright halls of a prince's palace no longer playing in the green rolling pastures of those beautiful hills in the countryside now, he's got he's to adjust to the arid, dry, and sandy spaces of Lodabar. And I'm sure he's being told stories of, of the evils and wickedness of this David and his lot and being told about how his family was slaughtered and cut down and now he's even lame and crippled and in the current state that he is in. And all of it is David's fault. He probably grew up hating, even fearing David. Mephibosheth's even, even his name, his very name means 
spreader of shame, thing of shame, not person of shame, a thing of shame. He is a thing of shame living in a desert, being sold a bill of bitter goods. And then something unexpected happens. He receives word that the king knows he's alive and he's been summoned to show up in court. Now that's probably the longest trip Mephibosheth has probably ever taken. He's, he's probably wondering the whole time, the whole way, what, 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 am, I, what am I being summoned for? Is, is, is he going to humiliate me? Am, am I going to be imprisoned? Is he going to throw me in the dungeon? Is he going to just execute me? Is he about to make a public spectacle of me? I mean, how much more could I be shamed? How much more could I be ridiculed? I mean, what's going to happen to me? Maybe when he sees me, he'll just have more pity on me. I don't what more, what more could happen to me? But I guarantee you he didn't expect what happened next. Because when, verse 6, when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. And David called him by name, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And you will always eat at my table. I had to raise some eyebrows for the rest of the folks sitting at the table. And especially for Mephibosheth. But verse 8, Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Now I want to unpack this exchange for a moment because I think this so powerfully illustrates the tension that so many struggle with internally, with God sometimes. Because, because we can see guilt and shame and, and rejection, because we, that, that it can haunt and it can torment you for so long that you don't even realize, you, you didn't even know, you can't exactly pinpoint when it happened, but sometimes when you've been living in, in Lodabar for, for, for so long, you've been living in that shame, you didn't realize this started to warp your identity. That that constant guilt that constant rejection you relive over and over again, that constant shame, it starts to warp your identity. We know this. We know this counselor, psychologist, social, they'll tell you, social worker, they'll tell you it'll start to warp your identity. We're singing it in the Bible. It warps your identity. Mephibosheth was told he was going to not, hey, can if you want to. He was going to receive kindness from the king and that he was going to be restored. And his response was, who am I? I'm a nobody. I'm a dead dog. Why would he think like that? Why would he think like that? Why? What did Mephibosheth do? He was five years old. What did he do to anybody? That trauma, that dysfunction in his life, that happened to him. That happened to him. 
wasn't caused by him. Somebody needs to hear this. Because, see, you can't be healed from what you won't get honest with. You can't be healed from what you won't be honest with. See, there's a difference between guilt and shame. I need you to hear me here. There's a difference between guilt and shame. See, guilt is behavior-driven. Guilt is behavior-based. You did something or you didn't do something that has caused you pain or others pain. And so you feel guilty about what you did or you feel guilty about what you didn't do. And the greater thing, the greater the pain that you caused about that thing you did, then the greater the guilt you, you're experiencing. But that's all behavior-based. You did a thing or you didn't do a thing and now you feel this guilt but shame, shame is identity-driven. Shame is identity-based. You are something. Or you are not something that causes you pain. Or causes pain for yourself. Or causes pain to someone else. You feel ashamed for who you are. There's, you feel ashamed. Guilt says I messed up. Shame says I am messed up. You see the difference? You see the difference? Shame takes guilt and multiplies it in the shadows and turns it into an identity. See, this is why we have an identity crisis in our country. Shame takes guilt, hides it in the shadows until he, until he convinces and confuses people and turns it into an identity. And says, now you are what you do. And convinces you this is who you are. You did a damaging thing, so therefore you are damaged. You, did, you broke a thing, so therefore you are broken. You have made something flawed, blemished, imperfect. Therefore you are flawed, blemished, imperfect. You see how that works? So many people, they don't realize they're walking around carrying shame, an identity over something that should have never been adopted Because the enemy in the dark places of the heart and mind was able to convince them to convert that something that was guilt. The guilt was real. But it should have never multiplied into shame and an identity. Sometimes shame takes guilty things that they did. Just like Mephibosheth. Sometimes shame will take guilty things that they did and multiply it in the shadows and turns it into your identity. Things that they did and convinces you. It's now who you are. Things that you had no control over, they did it. And now somehow you're dirty, somehow you're impure, you're disgusting, you're weak, insignificant, unwanted. That somehow you're different because of something they did, something they're guilty of, has somehow turned into your identity. Friends, shame is identity driven. 
And I found this to be true. And I bet you you have too. That shamed people shame people. People full of shame. Deep, even hidden shame. Tend to shame. We often hate in others the very sin that we see in ourselves. But you can't be healed from what you won't be honest with. Maybe you can't seem to get past your past because that's not guilt you carry. That's shame. Oh, I know my sins are forgiven. Yeah. Yeah, but you've taken it on like an identity. A dead dog like me, Mephibosheth says. And I love what David does. Completely ignores him. Completely ignores him. Completely bypasses him. I think he sets a great example for us. It's like David goes, I get it. I get it. I get it, Mo. I'd be a little skeptical too of me. But I think David's also learned a little something at this point in his life that shame needs time to heal. Shame needs time to heal. And shame needs a people willing to stand in the gap and be God's healers. So then, verse 9, the king summons Ziba, Ziba and Saul's steward, who was Saul's steward, and said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. Now I want you and your sons and your servants, I want you to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for and Mephibosheth's grandson of your master will always eat at my table. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. See, baby, she had 15 sons. He has 15 sons. 15 sons, okay. 15 sons. <laughs> Woo, thy sons. David's willing to help the healing. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands the servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at the king's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah and all of the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. Now, did you see what he did? You see what David did? Now look here. Gave him back all of his inheritance... Okay, then gave him the stewards and the servants and all those sons to work the land. Okay, but didn't send him away. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, that's not in Judah. That's a, that he could have sent him away to where that stuff was, but he didn't. He didn't do that. He didn't send him away to go live where all this stuff was. Instead, he gave him a seat of honor at the king's table, and he did so permanently, like a son. It's like the king knew that the greatest gift he could give Mephibosheth was the gift of a new identity, was the gift of a new label, like the one that was his when he was five. 
He was the son of a king. He was a prince of Israel. Listen, friends. The hurting aren't problems to solve. They are a people to join with, to be with, to be there with, and to, and to stay with them until they are healed. Now, can you imagine? I mean, I want you to imagine this. Mephibosheth coming into and being escorted into the dining room, the court of the king, smelling the aroma of all the warm baked breads and the juicy meats with all the steam filling the rooms, the clouds so thick you could barely see across the table. Ooh, I'm getting hungry. I, just, I feel the anointment. I mean, the, 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 the clusters of fruit and bigger than anything he's ever seen. I mean, he's been living and Lodabar is this. He's, he's seated in the grandeur of a king's table now. And as he's seated, he, he, he closes his eyes and he bends his face forward to feel the warmth radiating from the table. And his, with his eyes still shut, I just imagine that, that, that he begins just a flood of memories. He has to just start to remember all those childhood Memories have to start coming back to him, flooding his mind. I, I would imagine sitting at that table, he's, he has got to see his father and his grandfather. I, I'm sure he was overwhelmed with a, a wealth of, of pictures and moments of, of better days for him. Days a son, a little kid should remember. Days where his family was still together. Days of celebrations and days where, where there were good times and good memories and where everyone was, and everything was right in the world. Days where things were perfect in the eyes of a little boy at days untouched by violence and blood and trauma and the slight smile on his face. opens his eyes to be seated at a table with all those who have warred against, killed, banished, and or now rule over what's left of his family line. And in the courtyard just beyond the magician the musicians and the harpists began to play and sing. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness. For his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff. Thy comfort me. And thou preparest a table. Before me in the presence of my enemies. And anointed my head with oil, and my cup runneth over. And surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I don't know. We call it the Psalm of David, but 
even if it's just for that night, I think that's the song of the Psalm of Mephibosheth. What healed Mephibosheth's shame? I don't think it was land and servants. I think it was a seat at the king's table. Because from the first mention of his name to the last mention, they had to throw in that he was crippled in both feet. Now I don't know about you, but that, I don't know, when I read the story, it, it kind of bothers me. When I read the story on the surface, it's like a little jab. It makes me feel, it makes me think that the narrator is, is, is like just trying, to, just trying to twist the knife just a little bit. Just to remind us that he's got something wrong with him. But that's not actually the intention at all. That's, that's not what the storyteller is, is doing. Matter of fact, he's trying to do just the opposite. It's kind of like the storyteller brings it up again and again, not to make fun of Mephibosheth, not to make fun of the fact that he has crippled feet. And it is to say, though, as if, look, we know the story. We know the story. We know what happened to him. And people who had things like this happen to them, they don't get the record of their life etched in the annals of history. They get forgotten. But not Mephibosheth. He doesn't get forgotten. We know the circumstance. We know the trauma. We know the drama. We know the pain. We know the shame. But the shame doesn't get the final say. The crippled feet doesn't get the final say. No, we boo on that. We reject that. We despise the, the connotation of crippled feet. We despise the, the connotation of shame for Mephibosheth. No, no, no. It doesn't get. We throw it in there as a reminder that it doesn't get the final say. The king gets the final say. The king is spoken. The king honors his promises. The king makes good on his covenant. And friend, I have news for you today. Good news that there is a table that's been prepared for you. That there is a table prepared for you in the presence of your guilt, in the presence of your shame, in the presence of your rejection, in the presence of your pain. And there's been made a promise by your king who makes good on his covenant. And he took it a step further that he crippled his own hands and his feet, was crucified, gave up his life, buried and rose again, defeated death, hell, the grave, and your shame so that you might be free. Hebrews 12, 2 and 3, it says, And fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Scorning its shame, despising its shame. What's it saying? What does this mean? What it means is because Jesus endured the shame of the cross, he despises any shame, any identity you carry other than the one the king gives you other than the one that he's placed on your life, that he counted it a joy to carry all of our shame on the cross, 
that he endured the cross, scorned and despised all of that shame in doing so. But when he was done, he sat down beside the Father and said it was done. And he didn't do all of that for you to pick it back up again. He doesn't want you to grow weary or lose heart. Jesus despises your shame. He does not despise you. You see the difference? He loathes the weight of your guilt and shame. He does not loathe or hate or despise you. He despises the heaviness it places upon you. He loathes the shame of your sin. He despises all the shame that you carry of those things that was done outside of your control. He loves you. He despises what shame does to you. And he took all that shame on the cross and endured it to make our faith, to make our salvation complete. So that the only way to heal from shame is to fix our focus. Hebrews said, fix our eyes from who I am to who Christ is in me. It's as if Mephibosheth, David looked at Mephibosheth and said, listen, listen. You are not what your grandfather did. You're not even what your father did. You, you're not what you do. You, Mephibosheth, you're not what someone did to you. Mephibosheth, you are not what others think you are. You are not even who you think you are. You are who the king says you are. And the king says, you are a son. You're a prince. Friend, I don't know who needs to hear this today. But in Jesus, you are not a deadbeat. You are not a failure. You are forgiven. You are not a fake. You are free. You are not damaged. You are a disciple. You are not broken. You are blessed. You are not reckless. You are redeemed. Are you guilty of some things? Absolutely, we all are. We all are. But don't let the enemy in the shadows multiply that and turn it into an identity. Turn it into shame. Those are things you did. Let Jesus tell you who you are. You make mistakes. You are not a mistake. When Jesus rolled that stone away, he rolled every bit of your shame away with it. And he invites you to his table. Now I need you to see this. And I said all of that just to get to this point. I got to thinking about these two tables. I know you're thinking, dear God, you did all that just to get to this point? I got to thinking about Mephibosheth. Meal after meal after meal after meal 
after meal, after meal, after meal, after someone had to carry him in, bring him in, help him in, send him down. Meal after meal after meal, sitting around this table with all these strangers, people he did not know, grow up with, people. My goodness, some of these people probably ran swords through some of his closest family members. Who knows the intersection of of violence and circumstance and just meal after meal. This guy is in an awkward situation here. Meal after meal, coming in and sitting down at this table. After a lifetime of growing up under that weight of shame. being seated in the presence of his enemies. Yet a table was prepared. Because the king, the great shepherd, has spoken. And everything, every time he was seated, the truth remained. Everything that was given back to him remained his. No one touched him. No one messed with him. Every time he sat down at the table, the truth remained. He remained untouched, protected. No one harmed him. No one messed with him. No one spoke an evil word against him. No one. He couldn't protect himself. He couldn't protect himself. But the truth remained. The word of the king remained. And was his shield meal after meal being brought to the king's table. He's seated at the table seated in the presence of his, anointed my head with oil because that's what a good shepherd does. He checks for injuries, scratches, cuts. And when he finds one, he takes the time, dips his hands in the oil because oil was thought to have healing properties and would anoint, would dip it in and like medicine, would rub it on the wound to protect it, to heal it. And with sheep would speak calming words because sometimes in that healing moment, it stings a little bit. And so while it stings a little bit, we also know it heals the brokenness. So come and eat. Come and rest, son of Jonathan, prince of Israel. You are no dog. You are a son of a king. Meal after meal being brought to the king's table, seated at the king table. My cup runs over. In the Middle East, long custom still today. An empty cup means the party's over, y'all. Go home. But if the host wanted to make it clear that you were always welcome and that he wanted you to stay, then you not only filled it to the rim, but you filled it overflowing till it spilled everywhere onto the table. You didn't care if you made a mess. It was symbolic, but it was also meant that if you spilled it overflowing onto that table, it meant that me and you, we got a special relationship. You stay as long as you want. We're going to party all night. And my cup runs over. Meal after meal after meal. This invitation's never going to run out, Mephibosheth. Meal after meal, you are a son of the king. And I don't know when it happened, but I just have to believe at some point the healing came and his shame was rolled away. And I think it happened at the table. I think his shame was rolled away. And I think it happened right here. I don't have any proof. It's just my guess, but the scriptures made it clear. It spoke of the table twice. He stayed in Jerusalem and he always was at David's table. And my guess is this. And my guess is as good as anybody's. Are you with me? My guess is this, is that Mephibosheth came in and he sat around the table like everybody else and the revelation came. That the light bulb went off. Because see, he got to know these people. He got close to these people. He looked around the table and he straightened his back and he squared his chin. 
And he looked around. Because have you ever noticed when you're seated around the king's table, everybody's feet are covered. This whole time, everybody's feet are covered. Because at the king's table, everyone has something the king is having to cover. At the king's table, I'm seated just like everybody else. At the king's table, everybody has something the king's having to cover. See, comparison is the thief of joy. I don't know why so many people who, who are seated at God's table, who are in the family of God, want to cause so much drama when we all get together and get upset because other people sin differently than they do. My goodness, sit down, enjoy the meal. Everybody has something that the king has had to cover. Just enjoy the bread and the cup. I know, I listen, I don't know how long it took for Mephibosheth to realize nobody can see my feet. They, they can't tell. And I think he sat up a little taller. Because you know, sometimes the healing process takes time. It takes time for the heart to catch up to what the mind already knows to be true. Don't we need to be patient with one another? So while we're doing it, why not sit down and eat? But see, see, that's why we come back to the table. This right here. This is why you got to keep coming back to the Lord's Supper. Meal after meal after meal after bread after cup after bread after cup after bread after Because you're fixing your eyes on Jesus. You're fixing your eyes on Jesus. Because sometimes healing is a process. And every time, sometimes you're having to sit down in the presence of your enemy. And even though you're still healing, forgiveness and wholeness is still flowing. And sometimes, even though you're still, you're still working on it and he's still working on you, you're still at God's table. Your feet are still crippled, but he got you covered. Meal after meal after meal. This is why we do this. Because we're fixing our eyes on Jesus. We don't fix our eyes on a preacher. We don't fix our eyes on a prophet or apostle or teacher or so-and-so. This is his table. He's got you covered. I am not your covering. He's your covering. He's got us covered. And on that great day at the marriage supper of the land, I'm going to sit down at the kitty table just like the rest of you. His blood covers it all. And at the king's table, he covers all of our blemishes and all of our faults and all of our failures and all of our mistakes and all of our sins and all of our guilt and all of our shame. He covers it all because you're not crippled and you're not broken and you're not damaged and you're not too far gone. Jesus has you covered. So come to the table, Revelation 3.20. 
Jesus said, here I am. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and I'll sit down and I will eat with them and he with me. I've got the bread. I got the cup. All I need is for you to just crack the door just a little bit and I'll come in meal after meal. I'll do it as long as it takes. We will have healing. And I'll make you whole. You will be a son and daughter of the king. You are not your shame. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. John 15.16 says, I chose you. And appointed you. What more do you need to hear? You are chosen. And appointed. Listen. A lot of people don't know this. Adoption is a powerful thing. I do not know why I was named John Paul. I was born early. My mother was still unconscious. And I was placed in an incubator. And I was not born with the last name Vic. I had a different last name. But if you go to the state house, little clinic that I was born in Grantsville in Calhoun County, West Virginia no longer exists probably for the health and safety of everybody involved you have to go to the state capitol to get a copy of my birth certificate you won't find the name I was born with you will find John Paul Vick because I have a father who adopted me. I can't tell you how special that makes me feel. If you're here today and you feel like there's no way God can love you, Jesus says, I thought it nothing but joy to put myself up on the cross and to cripple my own hands and feet to wipe away your shame and to adopt you as mine so that you can come sit at my table right beside me. With every head bowed, and every eye closed. If you're here today and you don't know where you stand with Jesus, but you know you need to you need to turn over some guilt and shame. You need to surrender it. You've been carrying it too long. It's become part of your identity. Maybe you didn't even know it until this moment. Maybe the day is the day you take the first step in finding healing. In realizing you are who he says you are. 
you are not what you have done. You are who he says you are. And that your future is bright because whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Thanks for joining us again. We hope today's word was a blessing to you, maybe even challenged and inspired you. We'd love to connect with you, serve you in any way. Go to mynorthside.church, click the link for us to connect. We are praying for you. We believe that God has great things in store for you. We'll see you next time.